In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. <clears throat> may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. So uh, this evening we go through uh, matter, how matter is formed. And it was uh, both one of the more, well, there's been a lot of strange stuff in this book. <laughs> and this was some more of it, but it was sort of light reading for a change. <laughs> comparatively so uh, I'm sort of hoping that we'll have a little time just to do some other things so we're on page uh, 197 and this is part three of the book which is called uh, subtle particles and the first part is the search for the ultimate constituents this is the little introduction that's written by Tupten Jinpa. Part three is about the theory of atoms in the early Buddhist thought and the critique of atomism developed by other influential Buddhist schools, especially Yogacara and Madhyamaka. On the thinking behind the view of the Buddhist atomists, Vasubandhu writes in his Treasury of Knowledge, an atom, a syllable, and a single moment are the smallest unit of matter, words, and time. Interesting how they, by presenting them in this way, they sort of uh, indicate or imply that these are equivalent in some way, equivalent uh, entities, matter, time, and sound. And they each have a, a smallest unit, and they each combine in various ways to produce perceptible, larger uh, uh, congregations of themselves. Skipping that next paragraph, which I just talked about. Basically, earlier we discussed the Abhidharma's Dharma theory, the view that there are existence that are irreducible units of reality with their own intrinsic nature and the earliest sources, the sutras, as well as the seven texts of the Abhidharma collection. There does not seem to be any mention of atoms. So there's no mention of atoms in the earliest source materials, interestingly enough. And so this notion of atoms is something that's been developed later on by the so-called commentarial tradition of the masters of the Abhidharma. 
by trying to figure out well how do we how do we uh, approach the the situation of the appearance of forms in our world given the sort of sparse description of the nature of reality that's uh, in the sutras and the Abhidharma. Rather, the ultimate constituents of matter are spoken in terms of the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, and the macroscopic world of our everyday experience is understood to be composed of and reducible to these fundamental elements. These four great elements are understood to be inseparable because they act as each other's coexistent causes. So it has all sorts of contradictory features built in right from the start. These four great elements are understood to be inseparable and they act as each other's coexistent causes. The question is, if there are only four basic elements that are always inseparable, how does one account for the diversity of forms that exist in the phenomenal world? They don't ask, how do we account for the diversity of fundamental particles? Why isn't there just one fundamental particle that makes up by some difference in a, a agglomeration or whatever you want to call it, the four great elements? But there's put forward this notion that there's uh, essentially different microscopic elements. Just like in the Western scientific system, of the uh, periodic table we have. I, I think you guys told me there's something like 115 essential elements. The answer suggested is that this diversity is a function of the predominance of the substance of specific elements in any composition. The assertion is that, for example, smoothness arises from a predominance of water and fire, coarseness from a predominance of earth and wind, lightness from a predominance of fire and wind, heaviness <clears throat> from a predominance of earth and water, and so on. So the inseparability of the four elements and their interdependence do not entail that they always exist in equal proportion in any given material composition. Vasubandhu and his treasury of knowledge Auto commentary lists five ways in which the great elements cause or compose the derived material objects. The great elements produce the derived matter as a child is produced by her parents. They influence the derived matter as a pupil is under the influence of her teacher. They support the derived matter in that their transformations are functions of the modifications of the great elements. And they sustain the derived matter for they ensure its continued existence. And lastly, they nourish the derived matter and that they give rise to its growth. So how does, how does uh, these primary elements create so-called derived matter, which is the uh, conglomeration of these primary elements into larger forms? Although the exact, sorry, although the early Abhidharma texts are not explicit on whether these great elements 
are best conceived as material elements or forces. Judging by the way they are characterized in terms of their function, they may be better understood as forces. So four fundamental forces, earth, water, fire, and wind. But his theory of atoms, it's generally accepted that the earliest proponent of atomic theory in Indian thought is the non-Buddhist Vaisheshika school of Kan Kanada, whose date is estimated to be sometime between the sixth to the second century of the common, before the common era, according to Kanada's Vaisheshika Sutra. Atoms are conceived to be material substances that are small, eternal, uncaused, and invisible. Vaisheshikas maintain that the macro objects of the everyday world which are subject to change are composed of atoms that are themselves changeless. So they just break down changes, larger objects breaking down into their unchanging components. This unchanging nature of the ultimate constituents accounts for the identity of a substance through time, for it was presumed that the substance's essence must lie in something unchanging. Sometimes, sometime around the beginning of the common era, or possibly even earlier, Sarvastivada Buddhists also began speaking in a manner in terms of an aggregation of atoms. Unlike the Vaisheshikas, the Buddhist theorists did not see atoms as eternal and unchanging. They spring into being from time to time and then are destroyed, lapsing seemingly into nothingness, quoting McGovern in his Manual of Buddhist Philosophy. Nevertheless, these Buddhist atomists agree with the Vaisheshika's view of atoms being indivisible and imperceptible. They are, to use a Buddhist expression, mental objects inferable only through their effects. So they're uh, sometimes referred to as mentally derived form because we can't actually see them with our senses, which is one of the major qualifications of the uh, of uh, the system of matter and uh, or form rather the form skanda in terms of being the objects of the five uh, material senses is that uh, we can we don't have to infer them we can perceive them directly tables and chairs and colors and so on and so forth but the uh, essential components are too small to be perceived so they have to be inferred so while they're said to be matter they're said to be mentally derived matter Great treatise on differentiation, one of the earliest Buddhist sources explicitly referring to atoms, describes them as being the smallest constituents of matter. An atom cannot be split apart, nor can be seen, heard, smelled, or touched. Thus an atom, rendered in this volume by the translator as subtle particle, is said to be the finest or smallest of all matter. This description of an atom echoes the etymology of the Greek word atom, which literally means not divisible brings to mind the, uh, the eternal effort by human beings to discover what their world is made of. And so you can imagine people like grinding down various objects in their world and trying to see how fine they can 
grind those objects down into dust, how fine they can make the dust and seeing if they can make it become imperceptible. And then you have Westerners creating microscopes so they can see the finest little dust particles that they've ground things down into. And then uh, trying, and, and then uh, being uh, up against that proposition of indivisible and spending vast sums of money and incredible technology to split the indivisible uh, essential particles and super colliders. And if you've ever traveled in a super collider, you can know how you will you will know how what an amazing feeling that is when the atoms split. Just seeing if you guys are paying attention. <laughs> um, I was traveling through a super collider and smashing into uh, Adam. But if you hit the wall first and just sort of break apart. That's what the magnetic field is for, to keep me on I know. But it doesn't always work, right? Anyway, as explained in our volume, Vasubandhu speaks of two types or stages of atoms, the substantial and the aggregate atom or molecule. A substantial atom is indivisible, devoid of any parts, has no spatial dimensions, and is imperceptible. A single substantial atom can never exist on its own, but only in combination with other atoms. In contrast to a substantial atom, an aggregate atom is composed of at least eight substances. The atoms are the four elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, as well as those of color, smell, taste, and tangibility. Specific material aggregations have different balances of intensity among these eight. Thus, when, say, the color atom is predominant, we perceive color rather than some other derived matter such as smell or taste. So what's the purpose of the of the substantial atom versus the aggregate atom? What are they getting at? And, and so uh, the atoms are made up of these eight types of particles. Uh, the aggregate atom is composed of eight substantial atoms. Earth, water, fire, wind, the four great elements, as well as color, smell, taste, and tangibility. Which one is missing from among the senses? Sound. Sound. Why is sound missing? It's not tangible. Well, it's also not, it, it, it doesn't relate to like physical objects. Yeah. How can it not relate? How can it's it not, not a substance? But why is it form then? Yeah, it's perceivable by a sense faculty. 
this is an odd one, I think, and I, I've never seen anyone really discuss it much, but towards the end of the reading, <clears throat> there was somebody who said uh, that they didn't include sound for the following reason. Let's see if I can find it. Okay, so on page 221, which is in the, in the third segment called number 15, how coarse matter is formed. And um, it's in the quote from Investigating Characteristics, which is about halfway through that segment 15, how coarse matter is formed. So this is explained, uh, let's see. The lead-in says the aggregated atoms of our eye sense faculty, ear sense faculty, nose sense faculty, and tongue sense faculty are aggregated atoms that are a collection of 10 substantial particles. So too it is said that if aggregated atoms are associated with sound but not associated with the sense faculties, there are nine. Since sound is added to the eight substantial particles and if associated with the body faculty, there are 10. If the ton faculty and so on were added to those, then 11 arise simultaneously. So this is somebody else who has a different scheme of how many substantial atoms make, uh, make up the aggregate atom. And aggregate atoms are of different sizes. There's a minimum of eight substantial atoms in an aggregate atom, but there can be more. And then the quote says, this is explained extensively, such as in the following passage. Those subtle particles are associated with sound, dot, dot, dot. Here, those that are not associated with the sense faculties of nine substances, those possessing the body sense faculty of 10 substances, those possessing other sense faculties have 11 substances. These occur on occasions without the presence of the sound particle. <laughs> so there is a particle of sound uh, but they say because sound is produced through the primary elements colliding, it is not present at all times. <laughs> it, that's funny because, I mean, in modern terms, sound is not a particle. Everything else is. Everything else comes to you through a particle, but sound doesn't. Sound is a wave, right? It's a wave. Yeah, we it's saw not a wave and a particle. It's just a wave. <laughs> We saw in this book also that it was described as a wave. But is it a wave of particles? What is it a wave no. of? It's just a wave going through particles like water. But it's not the... So your smell is a physical particle getting into your nostril. By the way, what is the definition of a wave in terms of what... Yeah, yeah what is a wave? A wave of what? How is that actually defined? <laughs> so we ring the gong. Energy, right? So energy is has to excite something. So the wave needs atmosphere. If there's no atmosphere, there's no sound. Let's let's start with a gong. We ring a gong that's made out of metal, some sort of metal, and it vibrates, right? <laughs> Just like that. It's amazing how that happens. 
and uh, the metal vibration, the vibration of the metal produces a vibration in what? Pushes the air, which is the air particles. I mean, it's, you could say it's Newtonian physics. So the, the air right around the, the metal of the gong pushes and then it pushes wanna, the next next and next it's you want to hear it again or am i did i mute myself did you hear it that time a wave can be described oh particle of sound the phonon <laughs> this is some great stuff yeah Let's start with a wave can be described as a disturbance. It's definitely a disturbance that travels through a medium from one location to another location. So they ring the gong and it causes a disturbance of the air around it that travels from the air around it through the air, not right around it, but to larger around it. What do you got, Mary Beth? Oh, <laughs> it travels into travels our ear. Into ear. <laughs> and it makes vibrations. Your your sound is not on. Either that or it's not traveling into my ear. But I guess the question is, you know, when we say it travels. Researchers have gained control of the elusive particle of sound, the phonon. Although phonons, the smallest units of the vibrational energy that makes up sound waves, are not matter. They can be considered particles the way photons are particles of light. Mm. Sound, who, who knew that sound was like this weird thing, huh? So where are these from, by the way? These, what are the sources? Is it just like a quick Google search? Anything definitive? I, I, I just, um, I remembered hearing these. Nobody has sound. <laughs> Something about sound particles and uh, is it me? I can hear. Are, are you not hear? Are you not hearing her? <laughs> I don't now hear we can't Mary hear Beth her. because she's muted. <laughs> now we can't hear Derek. I know, but are you just? I hear everybody. Derek, yeah. are you just joking with us? <laughs> can you hear us? Yeah. <laughs> no, now we don't hear him. We don't hear you, Derek. <laughs> or that, or he's just maybe he's minor. just showing the non-existence of sound. <laughs> okay. He can't hear us, so when he comes back and he can hear us, we all have to talk like we're saying words, but not let any sound come out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got it. <laughs> I knew that would break him. <laughs> <laughs> Now, can you hear? <laughs> yes. 
it's a complicated thing. There's the sound, there's this button, and then the sound volume was turned, somehow went to zero automatically. Anyway, it's funny that we were talking about sound, isn't it? <laughs> Did you guys conclude anything about sound while I was soundless? Okay. Oh, we were just panicking because we couldn't hear you. We thought maybe you were trying to demonstrate the absence of reality of sound. Okay. Uh, let's see. In contrast to a substantial atom, so back on 199, an aggregate is composed of at least eight substantial atoms. And so presumably, um, you know, the, the implication was that if you have more water atoms in an, in a, an agglomeration, then the substance itself will be water. And if there's more smell or color, there'll be smell, there'll be produce a smell or a color out of that aggregate atom. But but help me out here. You have you have a subst uh, substantial atoms uh, made up of uh, eight different types at least. And we saw there might be some others. And then they come together and form an aggregate atom. And an aggregate atom has at least these eight atoms, substantial atoms, one of each type, right? So how do we get to a situation where um, there's aggregate atoms that are different from each other? So one aggregate atom is water, one aggregate atom is color, Does that mean that they have more? Um, does that mean that there's a subs that uh, instead of having just eight, they have let's say two color substantial atoms? Do you know what I'm getting at? Anyone? Is this making any sense? If all the if all the aggregate atoms are the same, if they all have eight substantial atoms that have the eight being one of each of the of the eight types, the four elements and the four sense objects that are uh, touchable, so to speak, then how do we get to differences in phenomena? There has to be some way of having more color. Well, it does say that in the next sentence, different balances of intensity among these. Maybe. Yeah, so what, what could that mean, different balances of intensity? Specific material aggregations have different balances of intensity. Um, thus, when, say, the color atom is predominant, we perceive color rather than some other derived matter, such as smell or taste. But we just saw that um, an aggregate atom is composed of at least eight substance, substances atoms. So it's the implication that, uh, let's say, it has at least eight and, and if it has only eight, then what is that aggregate atom? It has no differentiating quality to it. 
it seems like that one would be called like the base, you know, the, the but it would be uh, imperceptible. Neutral. It wouldn't, neutral. Yeah, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't be color, it wouldn't be smell, it wouldn't be taste or touch. Right, that would be the sort of vanilla or uh, you know, the unflavored version. Yeah. And then everything else would have at least one extra of something that would push it in a particular direction. Yeah, presumably that's the, the only way that things could be differentiated so that you would have, let's say, instead of eight, only eight substantial atoms in an aggregate atom, you would have, let's say, 20 substantial atoms, and 10 of those would be color. And then there's a couple of mm -mm. Uh, smell and then and the usual array of the other seven or six or whatever. And so that aggregate atom would have the predominance of color in it and therefore be visible as color, perceptible as color, somewhere, something along those lines. But, you know, think about how do, how do these things come about? How do, how do we get aggregate matter? Well, particularly because I guess what I'm, is the, they talk about the substantial atom and then about the aggregate atom. Is the aggregate atom made up of it's made up of substances, but are those substances considered not atoms? Something less than atoms? <clears throat> My understanding is that it's the aggregate atom is made up of substance atoms. And the, the, the fact that they don't quite say that and they say substances as opposed to substantial atoms is a little bit uh, confusing and perplexing. Oh, okay, so you think that the substantial atom is the building block that the aggregates are made out of? I do. Ah, because that it's weird, because the way and the way they describe it, you know, having no parts, no spatial dimension, etc. Isn't that one of the logics that they talk about in terms of how it's impossible to have a partless particle? That's the critique, you know, but let's okay. stay with the proposition. Okay, all right, so this is the idea totally that you can critique. have a partless particle and it can be built into little packets, packets of, and, and of rabbit, rabbit molecules and so forth. <laughs> okay, so, I, all right, yeah, so leave aside the fact that the, it makes no sense. Okay, yeah. well, let's go on. Maybe they'll explain right. it. Sarvastivada sources, including the great treatise as well as the treasure of knowledge, present a principle of atomic agglomeration that proceeds by sevenfold increments. Uh, for example, seven atoms are said to equal a minute particle, seven minute particles, an iron particle, and so on. So presumably, their, their terminology is suddenly different. So is a, an, when they say seven atoms, is that a substantial atom? Or is that an aggregate atom? It's probably an aggregate atom because we know that substantial atoms, you need eight of those to make up an aggregate atom, right? So seven aggregate atoms are said to equal a minute particle, seven minute particles, an iron particle, and so on. And they have this bizarre scheme to, uh, although some of the details in the progressive list of sevenfold increments differ in various sources, as noted in our volume, and the basic doctrine of this increment seems to be shared widely among Buddhist atomists. 
the number seven derives from a single atom having a nucleus with one atom in each of the four cardinal directions, as well as one below, above, and one below. You got that right? It's like a little solar system. It is a sevenfold, it is the sevenfold progressive agglomeration that is understood to account for the emergence of perceptible, perceptible objects of our everyday world from indivisible atoms. To my knowledge, the Sarvastivada sources do not tell us explicitly which of the two atoms, the substantial or the aggregate, is the basic unit of this sevenfold agglomeration. Since the Sarvastivada maintains that no single substantial atom can occur by itself, and that in the world atoms always exist as part of an aggregate of eight substances, the basic unit in this sevenfold increment appears to be the aggregate atom, not the substantial, as we just discussed. So the, the uh, sevenfold agglomeration is also a peculiar thing. Like, what if you only have six? Then is do, do they not appear? Do they not agglomerate in units of five or four or six, but only in units of seven? Or do they just not uh, become nameable as the next sort of thing until they have seven. Seems like you have that same question at the level of the aggregate one. Until you yeah. get to eight, you got nothing. And until yeah. you get to the next seven, you got nothing, right? Yeah. Oh. Uh, let's see. There's no... There's no doubt that the introduction of the theory of atoms possibly barred from Vaisheshika brought a level of sophistication and detail to the Abhidharma account of the material world. It also gave rise to conceptual problems, especially in harmonizing atomic theory with the earlier account of the four great elements. It's also unclear how the view of eight substances relates to the sevenfold progressive increment. Even within the basic molecular unit, the atoms of color, smell, taste, and tangibility are each themselves supported by the four fundamental elements. This means that even the smallest aggregate atom or molecule is composed of, in fact, 20 individual atoms, where each of the four senses has the four elements supporting it, which is four times four. And then you have the four elements alone, which is 20 in total. <laughs> it is a sevenfold increase of these 20-fold individual atoms within a single molecule that gives rise to the large number of 823, 543 atoms <laughs> within a single particle of light. Now, Emily here circulated to us recently. Um, these things and uh here can you can you see this in your screens this you're seeing the, a list of files the mo oh sorry they've picked the wrong uh window How about that? Can you see that now? 
Yes. Okay, the mole symbol, M-O-L-E, uh, short, which is uh, the basic building block of the Mexican chocolate flavored sauce, mole, is the SI unit. I don't know what the SI means. Unit of amount of substance. One mole Standard contains... Standard international, maybe? One mole contains exactly 6.021407 times 10 to the 23rd of elementary ent entities. This number is the fixed numerical value of the <laughs> avocado constant n to the to the how do you say that n to the minor a or something n to the does anyone know how to say that thing? N sub A. N sub A, thank you. When expressed in the unit mole to the negative one. And it's called the avocado number. So the amount of substance, symbol N, of a system is a measure of the number specified elementary entities. An elementary entity may be an atom, a molecule, an ion, an electron, any other particle, or a specified group of particles. But there's this many of them. Exactly, in one mole. So, it's the unit of amount of substance. So, I don't know which one is weirder. Is, is, is the Buddhist system weirder or is this weirder? Any votes on that? I mean, the, I like the scientific one. probably tastes better because it has that sauce on it, the mole sauce. But science one is weirder. Yeah. Okay. Yes, it's good good context to see that they're both equal. So mole is molecular unit weight. Okay, there we go. That solves it. <laughs> well, then you go to your periodic table and. <laughs> but but it has that many elementary and. Entities, six point something times 10 to the 23 elementary entities. And then entity may be an atom, a molecule, an ion, etc. So it seems a little odd that a mm. molecule can be one of the entities in the molecular weight. I don't know. Yeah, uh, confusing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one gram of something, it's part of the metrics. Okay, so you're taking a gram. But it's got to oh, be, yeah, I, I forget what it is, but it's a gram gram of something in particular. Yeah, grams because it's part of it's part of SI, so it's part of the metric system. And okay. then from that you can compare the density of a gra of that yeah. many particles of anything else. He's got it. <laughs> that nailed it. That's it. <laughs> it's all coming back to me. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But it does fit into the metric system. It's like yes. one gram of the official French thing of water or something has how many molecules. And then you can use that to compare with every other substance. And does the density, uh, is that in indicated by the number of molecules? Does that affect the density or are molecules all the same density? or? Well, yeah, I think like that many molecules of iron will be much will be much more than a gram, like the denser, heavier. Right. 
So did you say how many well, it's molecules? It's not like a gram of, are... which is heavier, a gram of feathers or a gram of water. It's not like that. Uh... It's the other thing. <laughs> so you'll have more or less of the whatever it is based on density. So it's how many molecules are in a square unit of volume then? How many molecules are in one gram of su gram. certain? I, I could look it up on Wikipedia. But, it's like some but, standard uh, substance, like water, probably. A gram of water has how many molecules? Something like that. Okay. Anyway, there's 823, 543 atoms within a single particle of sunlight. Just saying, perhaps as a reaction to such unresolved tensions about these issues within um, with the Sarvastivada theory of atoms, the Sautrantikas opened, I'm sorry, opted for a simpler theory. In their view, the four fundamental elements are understood not in terms of atoms but as forces. I'm with them up to forces, but then they become seeds. <laughs> They were on a roll, but then they they brought in the seeds within a within a given composite where atoms of color, smell, taste, and touch coexist to form a molecule. It's pretty hard to describe how matter comes about. As a matter of course, one important debate between the, those two groups of atomists concerns the actual structure of the molecule. The Sarvastivada maintains that even within the composition of a single molecule consisting of eight substances, the individual atoms do not touch each other. For if the individual atoms touch each other, they assert these atoms will become, will come to fuse with each other. So the question is, if there's no contact between the atoms and if there is space in between them, how is it that the molecules do not collapse? The response given is that the force of the wind element protects the integrity of the molecular structure. So you get that? Now, wind was one of the four of the eight substance particles that makes up the aggregate atom. But now they're saying that there's like wind in between each of the other atoms. Isn't that what they're saying? Sounds like it. Okay. Things just change. No, that's not wind in terms of spirit. Because <laughs> the spirit of the atom, because wind had that as well in the West or Greek. Okay. So the spirit know. that counts, right? Okay. The yeah. Sautrantikas agree with the Sarvastivada that if the individual atoms touch each other, they get contaminated with kudis, and then these atoms will not qualify as being partless. However, Sautrantikas reject the idea that there is space between the atoms, but maintain that the structure or relationship between the atoms is such that they form a tight unit. Exploring the Buddhist theory of atoms, one historical fact to bear in mind is that although we have extensive resource on Sarvastivada, anyway, he says there's not that much on the Vaibhashikas. So. 
uh, skipping that in Western thought, although the theory of atoms was first proposed by Democritus before the common era, it was only the work of John Dalton in the 18th century that a systematic theory of the atom emerged in the Buddhist world. However, the systematic theory of the atom emerged quite early in history, broadly similar to Dalton's theory. The Buddhist theory of the atom states that all matter is made up of tiny indivisible atoms. Atoms are the same element are identical in nature and properties and compounds are formed from different kinds of atoms and there is something wind element for sarvastivada and the four elements as forces for sautrantikas that ensures the integrity of molecules it's the gluon right that glues the particles together the critique the broad Contours of the above theory of atoms came to be accepted by most Buddhist schools with the exception of the Chittamatri Yogacara, which rejected the reality of external objects. This said the existence of indivisible unitary atoms became uh, this said the existence of them became a minor object of major object of critique by Madhyamaka and Yogacara thinkers, although an early variation of this critique can be found in Arya Davis text called the 400 stanzas since he couldn't come up with a better name and he was the main student as the number of avocado molecules of 16 grams of oxygen uh, so Arya David was Nagarjuna's main student and uh, his is the most well-known formulation, and it's the one found in, it's the one uh, that, uh, let's see, and although an earlier variation of this critique can be found in Aryadeva, the most well-known formulation of the critique of the atom theory is found in Vasubandhu's 20 verses, when he became a uh, so-called Chittamatran or Yogacara after having been a Sautrantika. And it's auto commentary there. Vasubandhu points out that if an atom is indivisible and is devoid of parts or dimensions, as asserted by the atomists, it would be impossible to account for the macro world of everyday objects through the aggregation of atoms. This uh, incompatibility of the microcosmic world and the macrocosmic world is something familiar to the scientific community in the West, isn't it? If there's such a thing as an atom that is the muse unit of matter, he reasons one must still admit it as having dimensions or parts. Say, for example, that a single atom is surrounded by six other atoms. The atom at the center will come to have six parts. The special locus of one atom cannot be that of the other. For if it did, the aggregation of seven atoms would in fact become a single atom. If, on the other hand, these seven atoms have distinct locations, this means that the atom at the center will have directional surfaces that face some surrounding atoms and not others. And the atomists are confronted with the following choice. Either admit that what they postulate is an atom is not without parts, or be saddled with an unbridgeable explanatory gap on how to account for the macro world through the aggregation of partless atoms. From this argument, Vasubandhu's Yogacara draws, draws a radical conclusion, rejecting not only the theory of the atom itself, but even the reality of any matter that is external to the perceiving mind. That does seem to be the simplest solution, doesn't it? Because matter just doesn't make sense.
Unlike Vasubandhu's 20 verses, Dignanga's analysis of objective conditions focuses on the untenability of anatomically composed matter as being objects of our perception. The heart of his critique is that given that, that atoms are conceived to be identical in size and shape, they cannot account for the diversity of forms that we perceive, such as vases and bowls. Atoms can neither be perceived individually nor constitute the everyday objects of our senses. Dharmakirti develops Tignaga's idealism further and formulates the well-known argument of constant co-cognition, that perception and its object are always experienced simultaneously, which implies what we think to be an external reality is in fact constituted by our own perception, echoing the quantum mechanics view of the role of the observer. So if the perception and the object happen simultaneously, then the uh, independence of the matter as the uh, substantial cause of the perception sort of dissolves. And uh, the status of matter as being an external independent reality uh, is untenable. The critique of Adam is in Narya Deva's 400 stanzas directed more specifically at the Vaisheshika version, version with a special focus on refuting its claim that atoms are eternal and unchanging. Arya Deva, and Arya Deva is a Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka gentleman. His arguments originally presented in a terse form and verse are explained in detail by Chandrakirti and quoted in this volume. Like their Yogacara counterparts and Madhyamakas, to reject the idea of substantial atoms proposed by the Buddhist atomists. In fact, the Madhyamaka view questions the very project of grounding reality, be it matter or mind, in any kind of ultimate indivisible elements. What are said to be indivisible atoms by others are nothing but smallest conceivable units of matter that cannot be physically divided further, but that can still be characterized as possessing, possessing spatial locus and sides. So, did you catch that? This is the, the Madhyamaka, the Madhyamaka critique of the atomists. So one more time, the Madhyamaka view questions the very grounding project of grounding reality, be it in matter or mind, in any kind of ultimate indivisible elements. What are said to be indivisible atoms by others, and presumably the author here is uh, expressing the Madhyamaka view, right? What are said to be indivisible atoms by others are nothing but the smallest conceivable units of matter that cannot be physically divided further, but that still can be characterized as possessing spatial locus and sides. Did that make any sense to anyone? Yeah, good. Yeah, it makes sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. They're just repeating the same they're they're proposing the same system. <laughs> but aren't they saying <clears throat> you can't use that article that the top is a part and the bottom is a part and <clears throat> any place where it touches another particle is considered to be a part? Isn't that what they're saying? Is that you just can't use that argument anymore? 
it seems like they go on in the next sentence or so to debunk the whole. That's better, yeah. But to be an indivisible, what are said to be indivisible atoms by others are nothing but they're the smallest conceivable units of matter that cannot be physically divided. Isn't that indivisible? Well. But they still can be characterized as possessing, possessing spatial locus inside. These atoms always occur in complexes combined with other atoms and never in isolation. So indivisibility and being without parts are incompatible even for these minute material elements. So they're refuting the, um, the aspect of them uh, being partless and not uh, uh, being connected to each other. Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka followers such as Arya Devachandra Kirti appear to suggest that a more useful way of understanding reality including the material world is through the principle of dependent origination and appreciation of complex relationships rather than through the reductionist method of seeking matters ultimate constituents in other words they're saying the macro level doesn't make any sense and is not helpful the doesn't macro or the micro the micro oh okay i thought i heard macro sorry <laughs> Yeah, I think the micro level doesn't make any sense and it's not like helpful on the path and that the more uh, expedient thing is to focus on the experience of reality as being dependently orig originated within uh, and that that manifests in a wide complexity of relationships in language that's, and arguments. That's my argument. So when everybody keeps bringing up quantum, I'm like, well, how does that, re that's a different space. It has no relationship to the complexity that we exist in. So all this talk about quantum and the world doesn't really exist. The world exists at the quantum level is not your level. And so that's what they're saying. I like that. The, the micro. Great. The micro level is a conceptually fabricated level. In language and argument strikingly similar to quantum physics, the Madhyamaka thinkers challenge any attempt to seek a mechanistic, reductionistic, and essentialistic account of reality. Today, today, any serious attempt to give a scientific account of reality has to deal with challenges posed by mind-boggling quantum phenomena like wave-particle duality, non-locality, and super position Nagarjuna's school school question our common sense object property based perception of the world which assumes the things we perceive to have some kind of self-defining essence that give their identity and these thinkers demonstrate the utterly contingent and composite nature of all our concepts every dichotomy one and many self and other subject and object inner and outer we take for granted as well as the very bivalent logic that underpins these dichotomies collapse when we seek its grounding in objective reality what we're left with is a paradox a picture of the world constituted by complex relationships with no objectively real relata whatever the hell a relata is apparently seven relata make up a, a close relative and seven close relatives make up a second cousin something like that 
the only description we can have of reality is on the conventional level of perspective that's limited within the framework shaped by our perception, expectations, our moods, and our needs. Thus, these thinkers enjoy the framework of two levels of reality, the ultimate and conventional, to offer a more coherent understanding of reality. On the ultimate level, they assert we can say nothing in the way of affirmation at all, and any attempt to develop an account of relativity at this objective level is doomed to failure. It is on the conventional level, then, that we can speak justifiably of things and events and their reality. And here, too, we need to be vigilant so that our account of reality does not succumb to the temptation to isolate some kind of objective grounding. So they, they like to talk about the ultimate where none of this makes any sense. And then uh, they, in terms of the relative, they like to talk about the macro relative and uh, uh, conclude that the micro relative does not make any sense, does not support as a grounding the uh, the experience of, of the world that we have. Hence the preference for the language, logic, and perspective or relationality, independent origination. And he gives some, they give a further reading. Which someday we may explore one of these, the one by Tignaga. Anyway, so now we have the text, which uh, pretty much repeats what we've been through, so we don't need to go through it in detail. Let's see how subtle particles are posited, section 14. In general, so we'll, we'll skip around on this in general. The subtlety of coarseness or coarseness of material form is distinguished by mass, size, and the way it appears to the sense faculties. It's not classified according to the ease or difficulty by which it is comprehended by the mind, as in the case of the coarse or subtle level of impermanence. So this is why it's said to be objective world, not subjective experience. Such physical form exists in a broad range of dimensions from coarse matter that is the basis of the course of the external cosmos and subtle physical forms such as a particle of sunlight, although subtle material forms to, uh, sorry, among subtle material forms also, there are numerous kinds among which subtle particles are the smallest. What exactly is the ultimate nature of the subtle particles? that are the constituent elements of coarse material form. How do gross material phenomena of the macroscopic world come to be formed from subtle particles? Are subtle particles perceived by the senses or not? And are those subtle particles partless or do they possess constituent parts? It is with regard to these questions that numerous divergent opinions have arisen among classical Indian thinkers. The view that gross levels of matter emerge from the accumulation of subtle particles is shared by thinkers of both Buddhist and non-Buddhist schools. Nevertheless, from among classical Indian philosophical traditions historically, it's the Vaisheshikas and the Nayayikas that are uh, reputed to be the earliest and most prolific examples of atomic theory. And so you, you read their uh, presentations. I'll skip those and I'll go to the next section, which is the view of the lower Abhidharma system on page 210. Let's see. As far as the presentations in the Buddhist text in the seven treatises of Abhidharma. So uh, 
in uh, the Theravadan and in the Sarvastivadan collections of the canon. The, the Abhidharma section has seven texts. Uh, let's see. It is said the material phenomena are composed of the four great elements which act as their cause. That keeps it simple. It is, however, in the essence of Abhidharma by Dharma Sri, a second century Abhidharma master and in the great treatise on differentiation, a treatise that extensively establishes the views of Sarvastivada Abhidharma, that detailed discussions on atoms are found, compiling the essential points of the great treatise. Uh, which is the main text of the Vaibhashika tradition, which is a branch of the Sarvastivada, and presenting them succinctly in a syncretic matter, manner, Vasubandhu composed his treasury of knowledge and his auto-commentary. It is in these texts that the tradition of the lower Abhidharma system presents its view on subtle particles. So lower Abhidharma is uh, Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, Sarvastivada, Vasubandhu, and so on. In this view, physical entities are formed from the combination of eight substantial particles, the four primary elements of earth, water, fire, and wind, and the four element derivatives of form, smell, taste, and tactility. The term derivative implies that they're derivative of the from the four great elements, by the way, which we saw earlier as when we got up to a, a total of 20 particles. Substance, substance particles in an atomic particle, that each of the four sense particles are supported by the four great elements. Uh, but here it's just said that they're derivatives, the four element derivatives, the form, smell, taste, and tactility. And it is in terms of these constituents that subtle and coarse physical entities are posited. Further maintain that if we were to deconstruct composed composite material entities, they are reducible to the level of subtle particles. And it is through the aggregation of many atoms that progressive levels of coarse physical entities emerge. The way in which the eight substantial particles assemble and form physical entities can be explained by taking water as an example, since water supports wood and so on by keeping it afloat, and since water promotes the growth of grass and trees, and since water moves, it arises together with earth particle, fire particle, and wind particle progressively, respectively. So the water particle arises together with them. Being water, the water particle is already present. And given that eye consciousness perceives the color of water, ear consciousness, the sound of water, nose consciousness, the smell of water, tongue consciousness, the taste of water, and body consciousness, the tactility of water, the particles of material form of smell, taste, and tactility arise tactility arise simultaneously with water. This is also the case with the other physical entities. Did that make sense to you guys? Is that clear as mud, muddy water? That didn't make any sense to me, just saying. Um, so when they say it, it like arise simultaneously with water, what is water? So water, it says, since water supports wood, etc., and it promotes this, it arises. Water arises together with Earth's particle, fire particle. I mean, we already saw that that the agglomeration happens by having one of each of these guys. So this example 
of water was as clear as muddy water, I thought. Well, they're just describing what they perceive as the properties of water. Is it, it, it seemed to me it was a little, it, or it sounded a little bit like the way you have the primary mind and then the sort of retinue of mental factors that goes with the primary mind. It, 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 it almost sounded a little bit like that. It was sort of. It's a nice way to think about it. Now the subtle particle is the smallest among particles and the basic constituent of course physical form. But it is also said in early Abhidharma treatises that the subtle particle is partless and that it is surrounded by many other particles and those particles do not mutually touch. They're understood in such terms because they cannot be divided into spatial dimensions or components while still remaining, retaining their identity as being such, whatever they are. One single subtle particle at the center is surrounded by other subtle particles, and if one particle went to touch or to touch another, and if they made contact on all sides, they would merge in a single particle, while if one particle were to make contact in a specific side, then it would possess parts. In general, such texts speak of two types of subtle particle, the unitary substantial particle and the aggregated atom. And of these, the first is the smallest discrete unit of matter, and the second represents the smallest compound unit of matter. The unitary substantial particle is partless, whereas aggregated atoms are endowed with parts. The unitary substantial particle is defined in these terms. It is a partless particle that resides as a constituent of material form that possesses obstructive resistance and it cannot be destroyed by other physical entities. It cannot be mentally deconstructed into smaller parts and it constitutes the smallest discrete unit of matter. I like the part about it cannot be mentally destruct deconstructed into smaller parts. So you can't think about it as being any smaller than the smallest particle because it has no parts. If you conceive of a partless particle, you can't conceive of anything that makes up that partless particle because it has no parts. Uh, let's see. For example, there are the four indivisible particles of earth, water, fire, and wind, and together with the four indivisible derivative particles of form, smell, taste, and tactility, they, those first four, constitute the eight indivisible substantial particles, and each of these separately constitute a unitary substantial particle. The smallest unit that constitutes an aggregation of eight such particles represents the smallest compound unit of matter. That substantial particles consist of both elements and derivatives is evident from the fact of there being eight unitary substantial particles. I don't get that one particularly. A great treatise says subtle particles should be recognized as extremely subtle material form. They cannot be dissected, destroyed, or pierced. They cannot be taken up or relinquished, transported, compressed, held, or stretched. They're no longer short, square, round, even, or uneven, high, or low. They are without parts, cannot be annihilated, seen, heard, seized, experienced, <coughs> or touched. Therefore, subtle particles are called extremely subtle form. 
Seven subtle particles constitute one atom. Among the forms that are perceived by the eye or eye consciousness, it is extremely subtle. The next one, the subtle particle has two types, unitary and the aggregate. Unitary are components of form that are subtler than all other material form that possess obstructive resistance, cannot be mentally deconstructed into other more subtle types of form, thus they are called the smallest limit of form since they do not possess parts, such as a moment. Just as a moment is the smallest limit of time, since a moment cannot be divided into smaller moments, the aggregated atom is a composite component. There is no subtler comp compound anywhere and it cannot be destroyed by another form. And then the upper Abhidharma system seems to perpetuate this view about matter. The presentation on subtle and coarse material phenomena is stated in the primary commentarial text of the upper Abhidharma system, such as those of Asanga, is as follows. In this view, subtle particle refers to the smallest unit of matter that can still be conceived by the mind as a material entity, even though there is no ultimate limit of divisibility when subjected to mental deconstruction. So subtle matter, the substantial particles, are mental entities. Asanga's Compendium of Abhidharma says it is said that the aggregate aggregation of subtle particles is composite form, but what is referred to as the subtle particle should be recognized as lacking physical structure. So we have non-physical entities making up physical reality. They are determined to be subtle particles by the ultimate analysis of the intellect, which dispels the idea that they constitute a solid mass and denies they substantially exist as material form. <laughs> so, you know, the, the way that our view of the material works, I think, is uh, the material world, is that we think that ma the material world is made up of very small material particles that um, have size, shape, location, and um, that when agglomerated gradually become perceptible. And if you uh, mentally repeat that, do you ever get to a point where the particles are so small that they don't have any, uh, they're, they're unbreakable. They can't be broken apart. Well, it, it seems like it's a, it, it, at a certain point, at least in the, you know, Western science or whatever you, it's a question of measurability and, you know, perceivability, you know, with tools that the end of the, the end of the line is really just how far your tools can go. So is there a conception in Western science that that the uh, that matter can, is uh, infinitely reducible to other types of smaller matter? I think that's the general concept no. that people operate with. I'm not saying that that's what scientists are doing now, because with all the I, well, I'll let the scientists speak. <laughs> Well, there's eight, I think there's 18 subatomic particles, which I believe includes the graviton, which they haven't confirmed yet. None of those can be broken. So they're subtle, partless particles. Yeah, no, I, I think they're, I'm amazed how, you know, 
in a roundabout way, they're pretty close. How, how consistent we humans are over time? Are you thinking that there's something there? Yeah. And partly it's the way we describe what we have found ends up being the way we describe things, but they're not so far off. Okay, so let's skip to the next section of how coarse matter is formed. How matter is, of course, formed. Is formed, of course. Of course, how matter is but formed. Essentially, what you just read is saying that it's sort of throwing out the whole notion of physical, and uh, I'm sorry, it's it's throwing out all the notion of small particles, and it's saying that everything's built off of subtle particles, which somehow, even though they're not material, make it make up material reality. That's what this view is saying. Well, they're conceptually designated matter. They're 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 conceptual matter. They they have this conundrum of it being not matter that's not made out of matter, but matter that's conceptual. Right, but is that, the, is that a problem? That, <laughs> I just don't, yeah, I don't remember actually having encountered this the notion that that everything's built on subtle particles that are, as you say, essentially non-material. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting uh, <laughs> little twist. New twist. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's not turtles all the way down. Uh, yeah, there you go. Right. <laughs> so, how coarse matter is formed? This is the best part. There's the following uh, explanation in terms of in text of the lower abidormal system and how coarse material form is established from the accumulation of subtle particles. The smallest unit of matter is the subtle particle. The smallest unit of words is the letter and smallest unit of time is the shortest moment of time. And it is these that initiate composition. The accumulation of set, seven subtle particles, they don't say like how they arrange themselves particularly, but just that six is not enough and seven is the magical number that represents the measure of one atom. And earlier they mentioned the arrangement of seven as being like a, a, a solar system. So you could, although they don't say it here, it might be implied that these seven are all arranged in that way. So Which we is have the seven visible planets. <laughs> The, uh, the smallest unit of matter is the subtle particle and the smallest, sorry, the accumulation of seven subtle particles in that formation represents the measure of one atom and seven atoms equal one iron particle and seven iron particles equal one part water particle and one seven water particles equal one rabbit particle. What? Rabbit particles? <laughs> So this turns out to be the 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 size of the hair tip of a rabbit hair, and there's a little pun on the word hair, I guess. But um, that's their thinking: is that rabbit hair is fine, finer than sheep hair. So there's seven rabbit hair tips make up one. A sheep hair tip and seven sheep hair tips equal one ox hair tip and seven ox hair tips equals 
a sunray particle. <laughs> I don't know how we got sun rays all of a sudden, but Eric, you're muted if you were trying to express something. No. Nope. Essentially, sun rays are made out of rabbits, sheep, and oxen, and all that sort of thing. This is just mind-boggling. Huh? It is said that a sunray particle can be seen by the eyes, but those particles that precede it cannot be seen directly by the eyes. In brief, Vibhashik and Soutronica thinkers assert that physical entities are established from the aggregation or assembly of indivisible particles as their basic constituents. He does some quoting. And let's see. Let's skip all these quotes. Except that they introduce, uh, let's see. The, the one on the bottom of this page is Vasubandhu's Treasury of Knowledge. And he goes from rabbit, sheep, ox to sun ray particles, and then egg of a louse, and the louse derived from that, and then a finger joint, and then seven finger joints. So at some point, lice enters. So the next one, the extensive display Sutra mentions. The Bodhisattva states that seven particles that are subtle particles make one minute particle, seven minutes make one small, seven small makes one sun ray, sun ray makes one rabbit, a seven rabbit makes up a sheep, seven sheep an ox, seven ox makes a louse egg, and seven lice eggs. This is like the opposite though of the other one. Before they had rabbits making, making sheep and now they have sheep making rabbits. It's like... <laughs> And uh, seven lice eggs make one mustard seed, and seven mustard seeds make a barley seed, and seven barley seeds make a finger joint. Now, who here has ever seen a barley seed? Okay, yeah, it's so. Pretty big barley seeds, right? Are yeah. they? Would seven of them make up a finger joint? That's reasonable. I mean, they're like this. Yeah, joint. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay. Do they mean by a joint like one? Just the joint, not the finger. One segment. Oh, one of the section. Finger? Yeah. yeah or, one section. Yeah. One section yeah. of the finger. That's what I'm guessing they mean. That's usually. And and did you did you know what a cubit is? Uh, I used to know what a cubit was. <laughs> so so when one of them says that uh, two hand spans makes up a cubit. And the other ones, someone else here, it's somewhere else that said 24 uh, finger joints. Finger joints makes a cubit. <laughs> Which could be, that could be saying the same thing, because if you take all these finger joints, that, that could make up two hand spans. It might. There might be 12 finger joints per, uh, as, uh, let's see, Mary Beth is holding up 10 fingers. Each finger has three joints, so that's 30 joints. Right, or you look at it as, let's see, how many joints? 12 fingers. So an ancient measure of length approximately equal, equal to the length of a forearm is what a cubit is. 18 inches. Whose forearm, of course, is the question. Yeah. Um, Mine's 18 inches. Noah, Noah's forearm. Right, you, you, you all know the famous conversation between God and Noah, and God was telling Noah how to build the ark and gave it to him in cubits. And that's why I said, I used to know what a cubit was, because that's part of that routine. <laughs> it says, what's a cubit? Oh, I used to know what a cubit was. 
Yeah. Anyway, this is a very bizarre system, but somehow they have they come up with a way of uh, uh, getting from subtle particles to uh, perceptible matter. Is, is there is there a way in Western science like how many molecules do we need to uh, agglomerate together to become perceptible? Nada. Does it depend on what kind of molecule? Uh, maybe. Are they big? Some of them lot. are bigger than others. <laughs> Isn't that so. what the avocado number does? You multiply it by the molecules and you get something that you can see or measure? Maybe. I didn't I didn't quite I understand know. it enough to know that, but Okay, so let's look at, uh, Henrietta asked us some questions, and uh, maybe you guys can help me with them, okay? Henrietta apparently listens when she can't make it to class. She listens to the recording, so she'll be hearing this in a couple of days. So Henrietta, thank you for your questions. Submitted on uh, Halloween. It was based on having read the article, The Unconditioned Dharmas, from the book Sarvastavada Abhidharma by Bhikkhu K.L. Dhammajyoti. So she says, how does a conditioned cause produce an unconditioned result? Did anyone else have this problem? I feel like this is the mystery of at least the last two of the Four Noble Truths. I mean, this is like the bedrock mystery that we're investigating i mean um, yeah i have this question it's like how do you <laughs> how do you end suffering out of this out of these causes and yeah that's what all of her questions are actually getting to so um logically speaking there's no way that a conditioned cause can produce a, an unconditioned result right so you're saying the buddha is wrong no I'm saying that the Buddha didn't say this, and so this is this is a very nuanced issue of like how is enlightenment, how does enlightenment come about, right? So is enlightenment uh, is enlightenment unconditioned? Nirvana is is one of the unconditioned phenomena. Is that right? So I've heard, yeah. And so it it doesn't it's not created. It doesn't. It's already there. It's not that it comes about. It's already there. So how, do, how does enlightenment... Enlightenment is the residing in nirvana, let's say. How does enlightenment come about? Supposedly by removing the obscurations to it? Yeah, so everyone, everyone got that. So the obscurations are conditioned. And so by the conditioned process of removing obscurations, then there's it's the unconditioned state of nirvana is not produced but the unconditioned state of nirvana is revealed which is the precedent to the uh, whole idea of buddha nature which is that the the enlightenment is pre-existing and we simply cover it over with our obscurations and if we eliminate the obscurations then the uh, but a nature is revealed which is her second question in terms of my practice how does path produce cessation so path overcomes obstructions and obstacles and thereby reveals 
the Buddha nature. In the Sautrantika system, non-thing, non-conditioned, permanent, generally characterized phenomena are equivalent. These are synonymous terms. Are you reading from her thing? Can you scroll it? Uh, I just did. You guys not seeing this? Uh, I'm just seeing the question one and two. Uh, let me try again. Okay, so do you see number three now? Yes, thank you. Bingo. Okay, Sautronic system, these are all synonymous terms, meaning empty of performing a function. They do not arise, abide, or cease from specific causes or conditions. So is there such a thing as a conceptual understanding? And she gives the uh, abbreviation GCP. Does anybody know what GCP stands for? It's one of the political parties. Generally characterized phenomena. It's not the grand old party. It's the grand corrupt party. Creepy party. <laughs> creepy party. <laughs> the greatly creepy party. Uh, generally characterized phenomena is a, is a code language for uh, conceptual understanding. So is there such a thing as a conceptual understanding of nirvana <clears throat> or even of the path? So first question is, can a, a generally characterized phenomena be a, considered a thing? No. According to whom? According to the Satranticas. Let's see. So if we pull up our little chart here, collected topics chart. So we're all familiar with this chart at this point. We have the phenomena, objects, subjects, and methods that lead to cognition. Are you showing? Yeah. I think you might have shared the document and not your screen, so we're not seeing it. Thank you. Sorry about that. Let's try that again. How's that? I, do you see this little green thing at the top of the page? So that's for the person sharing to let them know whether other people can see it or not. I see. That makes sense. So objects are classified in terms of the way they're taken as objects and in terms of entity. And then there's things and non-things. And non-things are non-conditioned phenomena, permanent, generally characterized phenomena. So she said, is there such a thing as a conceptual understanding? Generally characterized phenomena. So um, generally characterized phenomena are non-things. So the answer to her question would be no. There's no such thing as a generally characterized phenomena. Do you all agree with that? Do you accept? For the first half, I, I mean, if you look at the first half of the question, if you ignore the thing part of it, you could ask, 
could one have a conceptual understanding of nirvana, that answer could be different, right? Okay, so I was being literal about thing, and she's, and she was not being, presumably not being literal. She's just saying, saying, is there a conceptual understanding of nirvana? That's the way I read it in terms of the intent of the question, yeah. Okay, so let's go with that. Is there a conceptual understanding of nirvana? I would think that's what most of us have, right? I would think so. That's about... That's all, that's all we have. That's all we have <laughs> of nirvana is a conceptual understanding or even... Which is why we past. don't achieve nirvana. Because we have, we a conceptual have a conceptual... That's right. Um, so what what is she getting at here, though, with this... Can we can we ever really know what nirvana is? Is that what she's getting at? Or does it have to do with the issue of this, whether it can perform a, if something is not a thing, does it not perform a function? She mentions that in the earlier part, meaning empty of performing a function. So then if if a conceptual understanding is not a thing, and does that mean it doesn't perform a function? That's correct. So it, then it's not real. Well, so it's, it's there's not no a such thing. thing as nirvana. <laughs> so then, it's but that raises the, it raises the question of the, because we talk about the fact that some of this analytic process and all these things, all these uh, processes, sorry, are useful in bringing us closer to a true understanding. Um, but that would seem to suggest that they do perform a function. Okay, so um, is a conceptual understanding of nirvana the actual nirvana? No. So is actual nirvana a, a non-thing, unconditioned phenomena? Is it a non-thing? So let's look at our collective topics some more. Yeah. There's um, non-conditioned, uncreated phenomena are non-things. And so nirvana is a non-thing. And um, they don't arise, abide, or cease. And Is, is she asking, is it helpful to have a conceptual understanding? I mean, it seems like the only possible kind of understanding of Nirvana is a conceptual one because it's a concept too, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, Nirvana is a concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go to our fourth question. In this system, presumably meaning that of the Sautrantika, is nirvana a non-implicative negation, i.e. removing as opposed to producing so there's nothing left? What do people think? So is that? It's removing instead of producing. You don't produce nirvana. <laughs> 
and uh, so so when she says is nirvana a non-implicative negation uh, so there's there's possibly two ways of understanding that one is that uh, she's using language light loosely and saying is nirvana under um, understood by the process of a non-implicative negation or is she saying that nirvana actually is a phenomena that is a non-implicative negation? Is there such a thing as a non-implicative negation? A non-implicative negation is a logical statement, right? Made up of a subject and a reason and an example. So in other words, you can't have a non-implicative negation without all of those pieces. Right. A non-implicative non negation is a verbal or a conceptual structure, right? One could say yeah. that the notion of nirvana in some ways does imply its opposite, but I'm not saying that that's a non makes it a non-implicative negation, but it does have a sort of an implicative quality of implying samsara. It, it, nirvana is understood conceptually through the process of a non-implicative negation. How's that? What's negated? So in, in this case, when we when we say that nirvana is what's indicated by a non-implicative negation, the question is, as Morgan is saying, what are we negating in order to understand nirvana? I'm not sure that we are negating anything. That's why I was saying that there's an there's an implication aspect, but I think the negation part might not be relevant. Well, We're usually, not negating samsara? Yeah, usually nirvana is understood through the process of a non-implicative negation, and the object of that negation is true existence or so as uh, Mary Beth said more simply, uh, samsara. But she's, she's sort of bringing together this idea of the uh, use of a syllogism, a non-implicative negation, which is a conceptual language structure. And this idea that Nirvana is experienced by removing, which we just talked about a minute ago, as opposed to producing. That Nirvana is brought forth or revealed by removing obstacles and is not produced by the creation of something that wasn't already there or the creation of anything at all. So like you said, we talked about that earlier relative to Buddha nature, you could describe this way in terms of removing rather than producing. The question is whether nirvana is the same as that or not, which I think there might be different views on that, but. I'm also wondering about the, so there is nothing left piece that, that I'm not so sure about. Which would relate it to emptiness. Oh, what, what, is, what is left? Emptiness. Emptiness is, our, is left. Good in nature. Uh, but you know, I mean, I think I, 
there's no uh, no obscurations left, you could say. Well, it sounds like she's asking the second and third turning battle, but about the kind of Nirvana, Samsara, uh, Hinayana system, which it's it, which really felt like it was coming up in that reading we were doing. I understand, like I had the same question as her. Like it seemed like the lower Abhidharma people were dealing with the same questions that got kicked down the road and turned into the second and third turning fight over what is left. Is there something there or not? Right. So like I I I just felt great sympathy with this question. Like, yeah, I have that question too. It was interesting to watch them work out like, do we need an unconditioned dharma here to explain these disjunctions, you know, from the samsaric realm? Yeah, I don't think I'm being clear, but I think that they were. Yeah. <laughs> they were, yeah. <laughs> well, they I were think part, wrestling part... in the same way with the same kind of idea. And I think Henrietta is wrestling with it. And I could see it seems like the various parts of the Buddhist world are wrestling with it as we read through these texts. So did, did you pick up that that the unconditioned dharmas are. Um... Are multiple. There's many of them. Well, it said that that one dharma cessation through analysis or associated with analysis, the one that permanently disjoins you, it happens multiple times. You know, like it happens at least sixteen times during the path of seeing. Oh, I didn't get that far in the article, but that's. That's that really was cool. actually, you gave us chapter 16, and I found yeah. chapter 15 on the path, which spells uh, it out even more clearly. So, like, it, it mentioned each time that unconditioned um, dharma appears, anytime a permanent thing happens. Like, that's the permanent end of those, um, what do you call them, clashes. And they kind of happen in succession. Yep. And each time one of those permanent, and then in the in the path of meditation, which they call something else, the path of something, yeah. you, you, you continually have more obscurations permanently disjoined. And it said every time something permanent happens, this permanent dharma occurs. Right. But it's almost but, like, like balancing an equation. They're like, well, we got to throw in a permanent dharma because something permanent is happening. Well, there are multiple ones also. There's like, they're, they're ent they're like entities and there's many of them so here we have the orthodox Sarva uh, oh wait hold on let me share this we're a little bit over time but real quickly so three unconditioned dharmas of the sarvastivada cessation through deliberation which eric just called analysis cessation independent of it in space in the Sarvastivada perspective, the unconditioned domain, other than space, like the conditioned domain, is pluralistic. The cessations through deliberation refers to the cessation of defilements acquired through the process of discriminative or deliberative effort. There are as many <clears throat> such un uncreated, uncompounded, unconditioned dharmas as there are 
impure dharmas. <clears throat> this term pratisamkya narodas is the Sanskrit for cessation through deliberation. So there are as many of them as there are impure outflow dharmas. This is the most important unconditioned category, blah, blah, blah. The cessation independent of deliberation are those acquired simply on account of deficiency. The quantity of this category is even greater than that of the cessation through deliberation being as numerous as the conditioned dharmas. <laughs> so there's there's multiple unconditioned dharmas as the seemingly as the opposite of the conditioned dharmas. Anyway, I thought that was slightly interesting. And uh, lastly, um, I think for next week I'll we'll spend a little time. We'll go through the study uh, exam questions that came with that uh, used to be used at Notarta Institute. Um, so here are the some examples of the. Uh, What is the relationship between object and object of any given? Shoot, where did it go? Any given something or other. Anyway, we'll go through some of these next next class that we have time to. Because it'd be it's a really good way of seeing uh these relationship questions. What's the relationship between object and object of a valid cognizer? Relationship between object and object of an eye consciousness. What's the relationship between thing and matter? Matter and object of any given mind. What's the relationship between the last moment of a candle flame and things? So uh, the, the definition of a thing is that which produces its next the next moment of its continuum right and so when you blow out a candle flame the last moment of that candle flame did not produce the next moment of its own continuum because it was blown out so is it not a thing <laughs> not a thing <laughs> Not that's anymore, a, anyway. <laughs> that, that's a big, big question. Well, was the last moment an actual phenomenal thing since it didn't produce the next moment of its own continuum? Mary Beth says, no, it's not a thing. <laughs> anyway, think about that. It's the last moment of... Uh, sentient being before they become an arhat, a thing. Any comments, final comments or concerns or questions? I have one question. I don't have to be silent anymore so I can jump in with it now. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so the part of like, you know, seven particles of a rabbit makes seven makes one ox particle. I read that as they were equivalent in size, not that they 
made the next instance. Am I correct in that? That's how I understand. Okay, it. so they're not trying to say a rabbit particle turns into an ox particle. Th that's the so. language they use for it some strange weird, reason, right? but, <laughs> but it's a it's a rabbit particle of water or an ox right. particle of color. So it's an odd thing. Like all of a sudden, between six and seven of those rabbit particles. When you get to seven, you have a sheep particle. Right. <laughs> um, a rabbit. I just, it was reading this part, though, that inspired me to send all of that about the standard units of measure because a second is like nine billion whatever vibrations of a cesium atom. That's how they determine the length of a second. And then they use that measurement uh, to determine all the other base measurements, like a kilogram and a meter that's used to those measurements are like implications for the structure of everything we use in our reality and understand it to be so it, it actually reminded me of this it felt not that far off they all rely on each other and they're except for the mole and like uh so it's not that different in a way of structuring a system where everything is sort of scaled on everything else based on these sort of initial constants that you establish at the beginning. So I thought that so, was kind so of the cool. So me the measurement of an inch is like derived somehow from these things? Yeah, because an inch is in comparison to a meter. Oh, so a centimeter. Right, right. So, you know, like if you, if you want to geek out on this and you go around on their website, it's pretty cool, but it's like, there are these seven things that are considered the base measurement for everything else. And there's one for time, which is a second and one for length, which is a meter and one for weight, which is a kilogram. And these are highly um, systematized based on things like 9 billion vibrations of a cesium atom. That's what one second of time means. Um, and that's what the rest of these measurement systems are based off of. So it's pretty cool. So what and about it's kind the, of like this. And the leap second that they're talking about. Yeah, yes. what about That's the leap the article. second? That's the, if you guys see that, the email Derek forwarded, the top is a link to an article the Times just had about how they're trying to get rid of the leap second because it's too annoying um, for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely daylight savings is, is a pain in the butt. Yeah. yeah, daylight savings kills me. Go to standard, standard all the way. But yeah, it, it is pretty cool. I used to do that stuff for industrial engineering, all the standards and measurements and no, I meant standard how, how do you time. calibrate machines and everything it's, gets down to atoms. Mm -hmm. Atoms, what the hell are atoms? Anyway, let's dedicate our merit. It's just vastly uncreated. By this merit may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the greedies. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Yeah, so that's it. Um, thank you very much. Nice to see you and have a wonderful rest of your evening. And we
week. See you next week. Good night. All right. Good night. Thank you.